1: In all of the myriad subject matters that we've covered here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, there's been one subject matter we have yet to discuss that has actually been suggested by more than a few people through personal conversations, direct messages. I don't even believe I've discussed this with you, Whitney. So as you like to do so often here on episodes, Whitney was surprising me with topics. The thing we haven't really dug into, which is an incredibly uncomfortable topic for many, many people, is sex. Sexuality, the topic of our sexual identities, how we navigate sex, what it means for us.
0: There was one exception.
1: Oh, there was? Am I blanking on this?
0: (laughs) It was a recent episode in which you admitted that you were kinky. You didn't say kinky. You said like you were kind of, oh gosh, what word did you use? You were describing yourself sexually as being kind of
1: freaky, adventurous,
0: something like that. All of the above.
1: All of the above. Okay. So,
0: it sounded like you really wanted to like <laughs> let everybody know that you weren't super straight edge in bed or something.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know that I'm out to convince anyone that I'm anti vanilla per se. Nothing wrong with vanilla, but I think today is exciting for me because this is a topic that is such a deep thing for human beings, right? I mean, there's so much wrapped up in sexuality, from identity to self worth, trauma family history. I mean, it's such a layered and nuanced conversation. And I'm just stoked to have Natalie here to dive into this and many other subjects. So I feel like you're giving us permission almost by your presence, Natalie, just being here for us to finally uncork this subject (laughs) and dive into all the layers of our identity and the meanings of our sexuality, which is a deep, deep rabbit hole.
2: Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great that I guess I give you permission to talk about it, I guess, or I give you an opportunity to talk about it. That's better. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunity to just talk freely about it. Yeah. That's definitely what I'm all about. And that's definitely what my podcast is all about for sure.
1: What was the inspiration for How I Fuck? Which, first of all, amazing name. When Whitney first brought your podcast (laughs) to my attention, I was like, I'm diving in. And the three episodes I listened to of your podcast were so just mind and heart-blowing to me of hearing other people's perspectives from trans person to a differently abled person. I mean, everybody's story that I listened to on the episodes you have posted already was, to me, such an eye-opening experience of thinking about how someone else handles their sexuality, their desires, their self-identity, and breaking out of, I suppose, my heteronormative perspective on sexuality and hearing about what other people experience. And I just want to say thank you for that, for educating me and opening my eyes to different people's perspectives on their sexuality.
2: Wow. You're welcome. And thank you for saying that. Those are all very kind words. Yeah. Well, I actually had the idea for how I fuck, I think 2018 is when I started really thinking about it. And I didn't really start working on it until late 2019. And I was inspired to start this because I ran into a random article by The Atlantic, actually. And it was about sex coach for people with dwarfism. Whoa. Yeah. The woman herself, she has dwarfism. And she noticed that there wasn't people having this kind of conversation in the dwarfism community. And she was like, I'm going to take it upon myself to really talk about it, to educate people. And she even came up with like a line of sex toys for people specifically with dwarfism. And from reading the article, I learned all these things that I really had never considered before. For example, some people with dwarfism, some of them, their arms are too short to reach their genitalia. So they have trouble masturbating and others might have trouble straddling during sex because of hip problems. And yeah, that never occurred to me. I've never really given it any thought. Really, I never really gave that like a thought about like how other people have sex, truly. Because I think like most people you're just
0: super occupied with your own things, with your own sex life. You're watching porn which is like yeah, all of these white people that have perfect bodies and it kind of like you have this whole idea of what sex looks like based on what's presented to us in the media, whether it's pornography or even, I mean, movies and television, like they show us the same sex scenes Mm -hmm. between like the same types of people over and over again. And I feel like we have occasionally diversity in ethnicity, but we occasionally have diversity in different body types in terms of like somebody's weight, but we don't necessarily have it when it comes to their height or any disabilities or any kind of like things that we don't typically see in the media, right? And so that's such a great point and something that I think is such an important thing to discuss, especially in this time where we're having a lot of conversations about people that aren't like us and really not just accepting them, but doing our best to understand them or hear their stories. And that way we get outside of this super limited perspective we have on the world. So I love that as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I unfortunately saw, and I think like most people, Just consumed a lot of images and um, whether that was like TV or movies, and I consumed a lot of content that is very hetero, very white, very cis growing up. And I obviously don't think I'm alone in that just because the media definitely has a representation problem. They haven't been as diverse as they could be. And even when they are diverse, they think that maybe just having like one person of color or one LGBTQ plus person in a cast that's still mostly white, they feel like, you know, they've done their jobs. Like they feel like, oh, we deserve a gold star. Right. Yeah, as I got older, I definitely, especially recently, I've been more selective about the content that I'm consuming, the things that I watch, the things that I read, and who is it for and who is it by and Are they othering or excluding people of different race, of different orientations, of different identities? So I've definitely been more selective, and I'm really glad that our podcast can spot a a light on people with different experiences. I definitely starting the podcast. I was like, I really want to speak to people who live with disabilities or who are in the LGBTQ plus community, and I've also come in the season, we're going to be talking to sex workers as well. That's something else that I was really curious about. And yeah, just from reading that article by the Atlantic, which is great. And I, you know, I hope your listeners Google it. Just reading that I like, yeah, I think I fell into a rabbit hole and was like thinking about everyone, like how does everyone kind of have sex? I think maybe like a month later, I was walking to my job at that time. And I saw a homeless person who was sleeping on the bench right there. And I wonder how they find pleasure, find sexual pleasure, because they don't have any privacy. They don't have a roof over their heads. And I think a lot of us take, we're really fortunate that we have that. And if you really think about it, there is having an active sexual drive like being able to pleasure yourself whether that's with someone else or by yourself or watching porn i mean that comes with some privacy unless you're some people who don't want that and they they like that you know that's a whole different story but usually you do it within your privacy at your home and so i was really curious about that too like how does that work really right i'm still hoping to interview someone who is homeless an episode about that. Unfortunately, I mean, obviously COVID happened. And I was very much like, I'm going to go find someone and actually try to speak to people about it, you know, like really reach out to people. And I actually spoke to someone who is living in homelessness right now. And he has a podcast called, Wow. yeah, We The Unhoused or We The Unhoused United, I believe. I'm probably butchering that, but it's a great podcast. And so he's someone who's living in homelessness right now. And he is interviewing his people in the community. And I reached out to him to ask him, you know, what would be the best way to go about that, to go about trying to find someone who I can interview about that, like about whether like, how do you find ways to pleasure yourself or to find sexual pleasure, especially when 60% of like the homeless population in Los Angeles specifically, and that's where I live, 60% of them are black people. So there's also the stereotype that black people, black men Are they're hypersexualized? They're predators too. So having no privacy at all, like no means to maybe you know do the things you would want to in private. That probably you know like what? How does that look like? And how would that look like to other people? You know, because you obviously don't want to you know seem like someone who could be I don't know like I don't know how to explain it actually. Just that. When you just don't have privacy, people can think that you're being obscene or especially living in a country where like maybe having sex in a public area, you might be considered a sex offender. You might be fined for that, you know? What if that's your only option? So that's why I definitely want to find someone who I could speak to about that. But yeah, just from that article, I just started thinking about people in different situations and different with different lifestyles, with different identities, and how do they go about that? And in our first episode, we interviewed Andrew Gerza, who lives with cerebral palsy, and he's absolutely amazing. And he has his own podcast called Disabilities After Dark. And he, you know, one of the questions I asked asked him was that, how do you find the time to Like, do you ever have private time to, I don't know, just to masturbate? You know, like, I feel like doing this right now. And let me just masturbate because he's attended to by nurses. He's attended to by people and the building that he lives in. And he told me, no, unfortunately, as someone with cerebral palsy, he doesn't have that. He can't be spontaneous. He has to schedule sex ahead of time. He has to do that. And that's one of the reasons why he decided to hire sex workers. But yeah, that really was kind of a... That opened my eyes to a lot of things. That really blew my mind, which is that... Thankfully we have that kind of privacy. We have our own homes. We can do what we want. Like maybe we can like watch the porn that we want. Or we can, you know, have a sexual partner come over to our place and do what we need to do. But for some people who are attended to, or some people who don't have a home at all, that's
0: a lot more difficult for them. It's like a privilege that we have. And I think that's something a lot of our eyes are being opened up to is the amount of privilege in all the different forms in our lives. And that pertains to sex as well for some people. And I'm so excited. You're giving so many great resources. So for the listener, I'm going to link to all of this. I think I found that Atlantic article, if this is the right one, it's called The Challenges of Having Sex as a Little Person. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's the one. All right, great. So I will link to that. I'll link to We Are the Unhoused and then Disability After Dark because this is amazing. I mean, I'm so excited to learn all of this and very grateful for this information because I think up until this conversation, I wasn't really thinking that much about these things. (laughs) And I hope that the listeners experiencing the same thing. It does remind me of something that I would love to talk about. So why not jump into it right off the bat is I've been recently reflecting on pornography. And during COVID-19, there was like a massive increase in people's viewership of pornography on platforms like Pornhub. And then I think it was yesterday, I came across a video of somebody talking about how Pornhub is not a website that we should be supporting because They allow anybody to post anything on there. And so there have apparently been a lot of rapes being recorded and uploaded there or people that are underage because they can't verify it or things like revenge porn. And it really stuck with me so much because I guess you don't necessarily think about those things, especially when you have a desire that you want fulfilled. Sometimes we think, oh, you know what? I want it that badly. All of these other things don't matter, or I'm just gonna put on my blinders and do what I gotta do and ignore how it's affecting other people. And one thing that we really stand for on this show is getting outside of your comfort zone so that you can do something that's not just better for you, but better for the world and has this positive ripple effect. And Jason and I are not anti pornography by any means. And, you know, everybody has their own perspectives and comfort levels with pornography, but. I think if you are going to watch porn, it does really make a difference where you consume that. And I'm curious if this has come up for you, Natalie, in your work and speaking with sex workers and what you've learned about how pornography is made and what is positive to support versus what might be uh, kind of supporting something that's not fully within your values.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Actually, you know, what? it's interesting because I have a sex podcast and I actually don't watch porn. I watch porn for, for research for the podcast, which totally sounds, that doesn't sound believable at all, even <laughs> as I say it, but I mean it. I truly do mean it. It's very strange, but for some reason, and I've, I've tried to, I've been open to partners showing me porn because they're into it. And yeah, for some reason, it never really has never been a thing that I've gravitated to. But, you know, having conversations with people who work in sex work and even people who consume it a lot, it's been really interesting. And even just from what I've seen in my research in our most recent episode, I spoke to Black pansexual women who talked to me about just sexual racism, which I think is pretty self explanatory. It's just, you know, being kind of prejudiced and racist when it comes to the people that you choose to have sex with. And in my research, I found articles, and this has been something that recently happened, where people are are calling out porn sites or just porn companies for being racist or for being sexist. I don't remember where this article was from, but they spoke to adult performers who were saying that they have been in shoots where People are being directed to say the N word where people are directed. People are asked to kind of like wear very offensive costumes or have very offensive plots to the porn. Speaking to the woman, to the guest that I had, she told me that, you know, she herself, when she checks porn and she, she loves porn, when she checks it. It's kind of interesting how if you've noticed, a lot of like people of different like race or identities are kind of othered on there. They're categorized. For sure. Yeah, you go on Pornhub and there's the ebony category, you know? And what does that really say about our sex habits, about our porn habits when we're just categorizing people or, you know, a category for Asian women as well.
0: They're considered like a fetish, or you know, yes, yeah, men and for women, too, I mean, there's a lot of videos of like white women being with men of different races and comparing their bodies and all that. you're absolutely right, yeah, definitely, yeah,
2: It seems that research has found that our porn habits or our sex habits they're very influenced by the by the political climate that we're in or just a cultural climate. So, for example, like when 9-11 happened, there were a lot of searches for porn with plots that had people who were from the Middle East or had Middle East kind of plots, you know, or like terrorist plots or that kind of sorts. And one of the most popular porn searches is for black men who are humiliating white men so black men sleeping with a white man's white wife or white woman really and that is a category that also seems to be popular with a lot of people is the idea of like a black man just humiliating a white man because of that stereotype that black men have bigger penises or they're just better in in bed you know which um sounds great sounds like a you know, not to say that stereotypes are good. They're not. But in a way, you know, people would say that that sounds like a positive, like that sounds like a compliment almost. But it really isn't. It really isn't. And it also isn't completely true, you know. And I think that when we do that, when we categorize people in that way, and have these kind of like plots or these titles, where it's like black man steals white girlfriend, or I don't think that's a good thing. And I think we should reflect on that. Like, why do we gravitate to that kind of porn?
0: Oh, for sure. And it's such an interesting thing from a psychological standpoint. And certainly a huge part of wellness is self reflection and kind of looking at your motivations for why you have certain desires. And one thing that we address a lot on this show is shame and guilt and embarrassment and all of those things. And it's fascinating how I think sex has, for a lot of people, is about living out some sort of fantasy of a life that you don't currently have or like acting out things that you really want to do, but you're too ashamed or guilty or or feel like there's a reason that you wouldn't normally do that in real life so you might do it in your sex life or you might do watch that on pornography to kind of like live vicariously through these people and so i'm just fascinated by it and i think removing the the shame or trying to understand that and like why are you motivated to enjoy something and is there something that you could do or have or think instead of that that might be better for your your psychological health but also for the people that might be put in those positions to create it. It's also one of those things where because pornography is such a big industry, it's so driven by money and power as well. And there's a lot of things coming up right now, you know, with human trafficking too that's super fascinating. There that's a huge topic of discussion and how people that are in Places of power, whether financially or public figures, they feel like they can have whoever they want. They can do whatever they want. They can get away with things. And there's a lot of horrific things happening sexually around the world. So I think all of this just, (laughs) I want to better understand it and be more proactive in my choices as well. So I'm so grateful that we're discussing this. And Jason, I know you wanted to jump in on this subject matter too. So I'm curious about your thoughts.
1: Like on the deepest level, when it comes to sex and identity, I think it's for me, certainly growing up in a pretty strict Catholic family when I was younger. On the one hand, I felt this message around, you know, having sex before marriage is a sin and it's a crime against God. And I just remember getting older and feeling like there were all these control mechanisms put in place to repress and shame and guilt and all of these things. And the other side of it is, as we're developing as human beings, I think a lot of people, because there are people who really aren't interested in sex, but for me and for most people I know, there was this kind of contrasting desire of really wanting something and wanting this experience versus the patterning and the belief systems and the religious connotations of sort of this puritanical purity, save yourself until marriage, you know, don't do certain things. And sex to me is interesting because I feel like it's this decoding of belief systems and control mechanisms and power mechanisms. And the Catholic church in general is just a whole nother ball of wax. But for me, it's been an undoing, I suppose, as I've gone on of any mechanisms of shame or guilt or repression and constantly looking at how those come up in my sexual relationships. And I feel like there's been this really strange dualistic notion of, yeah, it's good and it's something to be desired and we're encouraging it, but if you do it the wrong way or you do it in a way that's you know not fully heteronormative or anything that there's just so, been so much shame around it. And it's always tripped me out too that there's so many laws enacted. I mean, still to this day, obviously, so many laws trying to limit people's sexual behavior. And I've always found that so interesting in terms of the mechanisms of the system trying to control people's behavior of like, even to the level of sex.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really unfortunate. I also grew up in a Catholic household where I was told that sex before marriage, like that definitely was something that was sinful and was looked down upon. Yeah. And it definitely takes many, many years to really let go of the shame around sex and the kind of sex that you like. And also like even if you don't on sex too, you know, if you're asexual or aromantic too, you know, there is it's so interesting because there seems to be shame in almost every shade of sex or sexual activity or desire out there. It's like for people who have too much desire, they might be considered like hypersexual or they're a sex addict or they have a problem. But then, you know, also with people who don't want sex at all, like in the asexual community, a lot of people in that community don't have any desire for sexual contact. They might be looked down upon as like something's not right with them too. So it's it's very interesting because I just think that almost like every level or every experience or identity, like there will be some shame around that. And as you get older, you hopefully you can just shake that away, really. But it's hard when you come from an environment where that is such a strong belief and where it's like very embedded in everything that you do.
1: Have you done any kind of work with, in terms of your own journey, Natalie, you know, coming from that very strict Catholic background and removing the shame and the guilt? and coming to your own, I guess, sense of autonomy with sex and desire and what it means to you. Did you have any help along the way in terms of you know working with a therapist or a sex counselor or anything like that? What was your process in undoing that for yourself?
2: Wow, that's a really good question. Unfortunately, I used to have a really bad experience with therapy, and that's kind of a whole different story, actually. <laughs> that has to do more with my relationship with my mother. In high school, I actually was She had me see her therapist, which is very unethical, and I'm not really sure how that was even possible at the time. For a while, I had distrust of therapists, and also for a while, I wasn't financially stable, really, so I couldn't even really seek out the help. I think for me, it was finally having open conversations with my friends about wanting sex. I lost my virginity when I was 20, which it feels a little older, honestly, because I hear people who've lost their virginity in high school. But for me, I you know, waited until I was 20. And so when I was with that person, I actually, that was a person who I was with for almost three years. So I lost my virginity to someone who I continuously slept with and was in a relationship with and lived with and at some point was engaged to for almost three years. So that's all I really knew. And I think after me leaving that relationship, I think that I definitely just, I really started connecting with my sexuality because I started dating other people and seeing what was out there really. And I don't mean just like in terms of like, oh, I'm just going to go sleep with a bunch of people. I mean, in terms of like you meet people who aren't people that you grew up with really. For example, a person that I dated for a while after that relationship ended, is a bisexual man. And I myself identify as bisexual. But I do feel like most of my life, at least when I was open to my friends and my boyfriend at the time, I felt like it was kind of erased. I never felt like they actually believed me because I feel like there's this notion that if you're bisexual, then people start asking questions. Like I've had people ask me, like, how many girls have you been with? And how many guys like they want to compare that and try to it's like you have to prove your bisexuality to people, which is really infuriating and so meeting dating like a bisexual man was great because I felt like my bisexuality was validated in a way having met someone who and being in a relationship with someone who is bisexual but also like he for instance didn't like doing this he liked doing that and like when you create relationships especially sexual relationships with other people you start realizing that sex doesn't have to be this one way like for example like i strongly thought that sex was very much like it was like a man and a woman and very like the man has to be dominant in a way you know there wasn't really room to explore there and then meeting and dating other people you find out that there's so many different ways to connect and makes you feel a little more you're more inclined to be more open to other things you're more inclined to be open to the idea that it's not something that should be considered shameful I don't think it's shameful at all. And so I think that's really how I slowly started breaking away from that because I was very much in a a very long, the only sexual relationship I had at that time, a very long sexual relationship with a person that it was very monogamous. It was very like masculine feminine in a way where I was very much in the feminine role and he was in the masculine role. And so branching out of that and dating other people and meeting other people and then finally, you know, dating women, it really helped shake that. Because I was meeting all these people with different ideas of how sex was. And I was like, oh, sex doesn't have to be like this. Sex doesn't have to be like that. Like it doesn't always have to be like penetrative. Like it doesn't always have to be like, like this person is dominant or, you know, I had a very great relationship with a trans person who I, you know, really loved a lot. And I think what he showed me was that it really doesn't have to be by the book. You know, and it's nice to either like switch roles when it comes to mask. You know, being dominant or submissive, or being masculine or feminine in the bedroom. You know, you don't have to feel like. For me, for example, and I speak only from my experience, I didn't feel like I had to always be this woman or this damsel who needs to be wooed all the time, you know? And I definitely started noticing that with my relationships with women or with my relationships with men in the LGBTQ community. Like this part, the side of me where I didn't play this role all the time of the woman who needed to be like ravish or this woman who needed to be pleased all the time, but like being in a role where I can be pleasing and I like, I can be the big spoon, you know? Like The man doesn't (laughs) have to be the big spoon. I can be the big spoon. That was really, really eye-opening for me. I learned a lot from that. And I think that's definitely how I started breaking away from those kind of ideas from when I was younger, really. And also just, like, truly speaking to people openly about it. I've been friends with since I was 10. And we, you know, we had plenty of chances to talk about sex, but we really didn't until our early 20s. And I remember, like, a friend that I've had since I was 10 years old, like, You know, I used to think that masturbation was really shameful. And I actually didn't even know what to call it for so long. Honestly, I think I learned what it was when I was like in junior high or something. I didn't even know what to call it. I just knew it was shameful. But when I was in my early 20s, one of my best friends who I've known since I was a child, she mentioned that she did it. Yeah, she mentioned something about it. And I was like, Oh, okay, now I know. And then I think like a lot of people when they get older and maybe in their early 20s, they just start speaking more openly about it. They like kind of look around the room and they're like, oh, I think it's okay for us to talk about this now because we're not living at home anymore. We're not confined in those kind of spaces where there is all these ideas of like how sex looks like and how our bodies need to be. And so that was really helpful too, just having people to like finally talk about it and be like, oh, this person does that too. Yeah. Being so open about it. I've seen so many movies where men are like talking about women or talking about sex or just talking so openly about it, but like women don't, you know, I didn't see that. I didn't see that until I saw maybe like Broad City, I think. That's when I finally saw like women openly talking about like just vibrators or masturbation or like, or even like sex in the city too, you know? And I was like, oh, this is, this should be fine. This should be fine for us to talk about. And I think that definitely
0: helped me too. Gosh, I love Broad City. I'm so glad that yeah. you <laughs> Yeah. And it's funny, there's another show I've been watching recently called Love Life on HBO. And yeah. it's a pretty cool show. I'm really impressed because it fuses elements of Sex in the City, maybe a little bit of Broad City, as well as Girls, which was another show that I think was super groundbreaking. I actually watched that mm-hmm. with Jason. And I love shows like that because I think when they're well done, they can open people up to feeling more comfortable about talking about things that are usually seen as hush hush. But it really does depend on your background, right? I mean, each of us seem to have been raised with a religious mindset. My family wasn't super religious or my parents, I should say, weren't. But there was definitely elements of that religious shame that impacted me. And I've dated a number of men from different backgrounds and just noticing their experiences and perspectives. And I too, actually, Natalie, I think I was 20 when I lost my virginity and remember thinking there was even shame and like how old you are yeah. when, you, you know, like there's <laughs> just so much. And the more you talk about this, the more that I reflect on all of this shame. And I hope that the listener finds some freedom in this. And there was even for me a bit of nervousness talking about something like pornography because even though I'm really comfortable talking about it, I wonder like, will some people not listen to this episode? Or if we talk about sex, are they going to think about us differently and think like our show isn't for them? You know what I mean? Like that shame and being a content creator and finding that courage to talk about this subject matters. And Jason, I'm super curious. There was a number of things that Natalie was saying that I felt like had been part of your own experience. Like, For one, your girlfriend, Laura's, is bisexual, correct? Yeah. That's come up in terms of her experience dating you. Yeah. Wasn't she also kind of like, maybe shame isn't the right word, but her friends were like questioning the fact that she was dating a man when she, her previous partner was a woman. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And first of all, like, Laura listens to the podcast. So I know that she's totally comfortable with me, you know, sharing this information publicly. And when we first started seeing each other right before the COVID quarantine in LA happened, this was early March, we started dating. She was relaying to me that she was getting all of these messages from so many. Friends and acquaintances on social media asking her, like, wait, like, you're dating a guy now. Like, I thought you were gay, or I thought you were this, or I thought you were that. And she got quite a few of these messages to the point where I remember at one point she was really emotionally upset. She was crying about it and feeling like, why is everyone judging me? Why is everyone trying to put me in a box? Why is everyone trying to dictate expectations of who I want to be with? You know, and she looked at me, she's like, I just, I love who I love. And that's that. And from the get-go it was just so interesting for me it's my first relationship with someone who is identifies as fully bisexual and has been in love and been in romantic relationships with both men and women but to see her try and navigate i don't know that it was that people were trying to shame her as much as it was my interpretation of it is like people have ideas about us as human beings in our boxes and words and I think language, depending how we use it, can be very empowering or it can be super limiting. And I think what I observed with people responding to her, you know, having me as her new partner was like, we thought you were only into women now. And that, how can you be with a guy? And we're confused. And her job is like, it's not my job to like assage your concerns or confusion. Like I'm choosing who I choose and that's my choice. It's just been an interesting journey being with her I suppose, to see how people have been responding to us being together. It's just been fascinating to observe it.
2: Yeah. It seems people get really heated up when they're confused or whatever. Like they seem really confused about something and they're just like, "Why?" Like my brain was wired to think this way. You told me to make my brain think that this of you. And now I have to, I don't know, teach my brain to think (laughs) something else of you
0: or something. Right, right. (laughs) We don't like it when people change because that feels threatening to us. On some level. Yeah, totally. And it's not even your partner's
2: changing because your partner is bisexual. So it's not even like they're changing at all. She's just being who she is. Yeah, that's, God, that's very, very unfortunate about what the messages that she's been receiving. Yeah, I've been in situations where. It is confusing for people. And definitely, I think lately working on this podcast, I've reflected a lot on my bisexuality. And I do remember kind of being like, I've been in relationships with two women. For some reason, this is the thing with me, actually, people that I date, unless it's like a long term relationship for like a year or two or three, people I date. It's usually like three months. I don't know why. I feel like I have like a trial period. Like I'll be like really into someone, and then three months mark, I'm just like, oh, never mind or something. So both of these women, I don't know. It's just like with men and with women, it's always been like that. Like a three month mark.
0: Minus two months, so I can completely oh, relate <laughs> to that. What's yours, Jason?
1: <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I for most of my adult life romantically, and this is even back to high school. I feel like mostly I've been a serial monogamist, but I've also had periods in the last 10 years all throughout, I think, my entire 30s and now in my early 40s, where I have had quite a few that have been like eight weeks, three months, four months, five months. I think lately I've been less of a serial monogamist and more of like between the two and five month mark. Not intentionally, it just seems like after my last partnership ended in 2016, Between now and then, it's been a lot of, I guess, trial runs, as you call it, Natalie.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely was a serial monogamist when, I mean, I had a partner since I was like 15. I think like I've always had like a boyfriend and it was like almost two-year relationship and then after that, another two-year relationship and then after that, an almost like three-year relationship. And so, yeah, for a while, I definitely was just I was like, I need to be more a little more careful about who I decide to be in relationships with. And I need to date people for a while before I can say that they are my boyfriend or my girlfriend. So I think that's why three months, but it's strange because it's always been three months for some reason. But um, what I was going with that is that every time that I would be in a relationship with a woman, especially the first woman that I ever really dated, her and I were together for three months. And I remember just having this kind of fear, like not a fear, but I was just like, wait, am I gay? And I remember telling my dad, like when I started dating her, I remember telling my dad, I think I'm gay. Like I told him this woman is in my life. I'm dating this woman. And I told him like, I think I'm gay instead of saying I'm bisexual because I knew I've always known since I was... A child that I was bisexual. I've always known that. And yeah. So when I finally got into my first relationship with a woman, I was like, am I gay? Like I was like, maybe I'm gay. Like maybe this entire time I was gay and I didn't know it, you know? And then after that ended and I started dating men again, I was like, oh, I guess I'm not. And I'm like, I'm a fraud. Oh, What's wrong with my brain? And then again, when I dated another woman, I was like, I'm gay. I think I'm gay. And it was just, it was weird. It was weird that my brain would do that. Like I, even myself, like I felt like I had to be definite. Like even when I was in those kind of relationships, I also felt like I'm either this or I'm that, you know? And with this podcast, I've been doing just a lot of more research. I've been reading up more LGBTQ plus content and like seeing what's out there. And I've seen videos and articles by by people who say that they have that they kind of have their own biphobia in a way where they have this kind of anxiety where it's like maybe I'm just gay you know like right now in this relationship that I'm in I'm in a relationship with a man I can say very freely and openly as always that I'm bi but when I was with women I'd be like maybe I'm gay and I'm like that's not you know not that there's anything wrong with that it's interesting because even like kind of almost similar to what the kind of reactions your partner is getting it's like I also even with myself was like I need to give myself an answer like I need to decide whether I am or I'm not you know and I grew up in a family where yeah my father never really thought that bisexuality was a real thing and I remember him kind of talking about that a couple times like he said you either are or you aren't I mean, me and my father have a pretty good relationship. And even uh, his my stepmother, his wife, told me that, you know, you definitely changed the way <laughs> he looks at bisexuality because now he's just like, no, it is, you know, it's real. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I do feel that me, for example, and maybe some other bi people out there you do question yourself too when you're in it and people will question you and be like, I thought you were gay or I thought you were this, I thought you were that. And then you yourself, you might question it also. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the fact that we grew up feeling like we always had to have a definite answer for something like people are always asking questions like we live in a especially now we live in an age of just like knowledge and people want to know things and people make statements or like we're always learning and so whenever there's like an in between it throws people off and it can even throw yourself off even if you are in that in between if that makes sense
1: yeah it's so interesting because i feel like this struggle that you're describing so beautifully natalie to me feels like it can be extrapolated into other machinations in the world, like this binary thinking, right? You're either straight or you're gay. You're either a Democrat or you're a Republican, you know, you're whatever. You're either vegan or you're a meat eater. Yeah. You're a liberal or you're a conservative. I mean, we could go on down the line of how many systems and structures and mechanistic ways of thinking we have in duality consciousness. And it's almost like, when you're in an area that you don't have a name for necessarily, or in terms of bisexuality, a label, if you will, that you're trying to define for yourself, that there's not just some locked down definition of what it is. It, there's gradations of it. There's there's shades of this. And the exciting thing that I'm finding in terms of, I suppose, are for lack of a better word, collective awakening or collective empathy or people hearing stories, doing research, seeing other ways that people are living, again, in terms of ethnicity, gender, race, color, religion, sexuality, all the things we're talking about, as much chaos and batshit craziness as there is in the world right now, I mean, we can all attest to that. I'm excited by the fact that people are, I suppose, waking up to the fact that we don't have to anchor ourselves in these binary choices anymore. We can really you know, just rip open the box and say, maybe I don't know what I am and maybe there's not even a name for it yet. And that takes a lot of fucking courage, right? Like to go into sort of uncharted territory and maybe not even have a title or a label for what you are yet.
2: Yeah, definitely. I agree. We live in, especially now, like these times where it's like, we want labels, we want to group people. And I think maybe there's I mean, there's got to be something like some kind of like studies about this, you know, like how our brain works this way. I think our brain does like labels. I think our brain likes grouping things and having little boxes. It's like that episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where everything in a person's <laughs> brain is in like in files and cabinets and stuff and they're all in order. And so when we hear about someone maybe dating someone who isn't like the people that they've dated before and when people decide these different things it's confusing for us you know and I know you mentioned veganism I'm a vegan and I get that a lot too where at first in my veganism I was just like I think it's okay like every once in a while you know like Thanksgiving, like if I want to try my boyfriend's dish or something, like I'll have that. But if I did that in front of someone like a friend, they'd be like, wait, I thought you were a vegan, you know, right? And it's like, yep. <laughs> And So I'm definitely not like that anymore. As a vegan, I've uh, watched a little too many documentaries during this pandemic, like I've like, consumed a little too much content, where now I am a little bit grossed out by me right now, currently. But before, when, you know, in the beginning of my veganism, I was like, I'm not, you know, I'm doing this for the environment because of climate change. I'm doing this for different reasons as opposed to just animal rights. You know, I think it's okay if every once in a while, if I go like on a vacation, if I go on a trip somewhere where I've never been there. And they have a dish that has meat, I think it's okay every once in a while if I if I do indulge in it. But if I did that in front of someone after I told them that I was vegan, like they absolutely trip out. They're just like, I thought you were vegan, or this and that. And then having to explain yourself and be like, Oh, I decided to, you know, I'm just gonna, I don't know, take like a little break right now or just make this one exception because we're in a different country, in a different state, or we're at this wedding and they gave me this food, you
0: know? So Yeah. I mean, we struggle with that so much, and Jason and I often talk about how that's actually negatively impacted our feelings towards the vegan movement, and it's pushing us away from it at times because we tend to be so, for lack of a better term, like liberally minded with our perspectives on things. That constant potential for somebody to judge you for your decisions can really weigh heavily on you and cause anxiety or depression or isolation and shame and all of these really tough emotions that aren't good for your mental health. And so it is fascinating how people can just be incredibly opinionated and critical about All these different elements of your lifestyle that tend to be very personal decisions. And I think it comes out of this desire, especially in the vegan movement. It's like, well, we want you to be perfect because maybe if you're perfect and we're collectively perfect, then we'll make a bigger change. And it's like this fear. That if somebody doesn't do something perfectly all the time, then things aren't going to work out the way that we want them to. And I think sexually, it's interesting as well. It's like there's so much fear within sex, especially I think a lot of it comes from or stems from a religious perspective which is like we have to do things because this is the way that they're done and this is the way that we act and if we do something out of bounds then it's a domino effect and everything's going to get wrong and it's going to be out of our control and that's scary and I think it causes a lot of times, just like with the vegan thing, too much constriction causes somebody to get rebellious sometimes or to somebody to to swing in the opposite direction because they're so full of resentment or they feel like they're going to burst. And I think that's the unfortunate side of trying to do everything perfectly or coloring within the lines and abiding by other people's rules and boundaries. And I love that we're having this discussion, not just about sexuality, but the vegan side of it as well. And I know that the topic of depression and anxiety are things that hit close to home for both you, Natalie, and Jason. And so I'm curious about the intersection between that and sexuality, veganism, or other things in your life and how you two have been navigating that. The other thing I really want to make sure we touch upon too is sexuality during quarantine. So whichever you two want to dive into next, I'm super curious.
2: <laughs> yeah, I unfortunately don't think, yeah, my quarantine sex life is exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah. But few people are experiencing exciting <laughs> quarantine sex, especially safely, right? Because yeah, yeah. now safe sex takes on a whole different meaning, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm in a long-term relationship and I live with my partner And I think like in the beginning of this, before things got super, super scary, (laughs) I think, yeah, we were definitely, I was like, oh, great. We're home all the time. We're having more sex. I think maybe that lasted like two weeks and then things got crazy. Things got super crazy. And unfortunately the job that I was at, at the time I was laid off from that. And that was like terrifying. And my partner is a freelancer and he works in the entertainment industry. So there's no shows There's no festivals, concerts, any of that sort where he would normally be thriving during this time, That that's not happening right now. So that also causes stresses. And also just like seeing other people struggle. My dad owns a small business and they definitely have been struggling during these times. So unfortunately, yeah, it's like, it's definitely affected my sexual desire. Like I definitely have not had that much of a desire to have sex, which is really interesting because I think I'm vanilla. I'm pretty vanilla, actually. It's weird because I'm pretty vanilla. I also don't watch porn, but I have a sex podcast. But every partner that I've ever been with, I've always had a higher sex drive than my partner. Like, always. Like, I've always had, like, such a a pretty high libido. That's always been the case with everyone I've always dated. I've always, like, you know, I think the longest I had ever gone without sex was like four months. And that's because I had like a skin infection. (laughs) Yeah, I had cystic acne, inflammatory acne when I was in my early 20s, which I have some scarring from it. And so I definitely did not want to leave the house because of it. And it also was very painful. It's on your face. And so that was the longest I ever really went without having sex, actually, which my boyfriend always teases me about because he's – Yeah. He just thinks that's a little crazy. But yeah, now that we're in this, I definitely haven't had the desire. I've definitely gone like a week or two without really having sex, which I think is, I don't know, I think it's kind of incredible for me, especially living with my partner, especially sharing, you know, sharing the same bet and the fact that we're both in here all the time. I'm working again, which is great, but I'm working remotely. So I'm always home also. But yeah, my sex drive really, even creating this podcast and really working on it and focusing on it, I don't know, it really hasn't affected my libido. But I feel like once things kind of pick up and things feel more normal, I definitely feel that my sex drive is going to be normal again.
0: That'd be such an interesting subject matter to explore more. I don't know if you did an episode on this yet, but about sex during quarantine and I mean, it's been fascinating for me just talking to other people, friends of mine, for example, who are single and some of them really struggling. The loneliness is intense. I think you can feel lonely even when you're in a relationship and not necessarily because that partner isn't stimulating enough for you or things aren't going well. Even in a great relationship, you desire contact with other people. And there's so much strain that quarantine has put on relationships. But to me, it sounds maybe even more challenging to be single during this time and seeing my friends like dating and their decisions around it and going on the dating apps and some people that have actually met people in person. I know numerous people who have done that during this time. And it's an interesting thing. And I've actually had to try not to be judgmental about their decisions just in general, I, I try to have a lot of compassion, even though there's part of me that's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they would go and like have a sexual relationship with somebody yeah. that's a stranger during COVID, you know? Like, yeah. but I have to realize that that's their decision. Just like we're talking about veganism, like, how dare that person have a non vegan meal? Like, don't they know what's at stake? But we have to remember that each person is making these decisions to the best of their abilities and their circumstances and their mental state. And I think, Coming back around to the depression and anxiety side of things, those are always fascinating too when it comes to sexuality because I've been with a number of partners who have struggled with depression and that's certainly affected our sexual dynamic. Like you, Natalie, I-, I tend to have the higher sex drive in my relationships. <laughs> so, very relatable. And, you know, that in itself is a struggle, but there have been partners that I've been with who have really had low sex drives because of practically crippling depression or anxiety. Yeah, for sure. I
2: have friends who even just in general with depression, they really can't, they can't put themselves in that mindset, which I think totally makes sense. I've definitely gone through my episodes of depression and I can't tell you why I still had sex, even though I was depressed. I I can't really tell you that. But I can see how you don't have the drive to do really much of anything, especially if you're coming from a place where you're not too happy with yourself. Because sometimes with depression, at least for me especially, with depression, you're not necessarily happy with yourself. You know, you're not really happy in the present moment, but maybe you start kind of obsessing over things about your past or things that you've done, mistakes that you've done, or you yourself in this, in the now and you don't really like yourself. And I think obviously the best kind of like way to have sex, but like the best mindset to be in is to be in a place where you're kind of like happy with yourself. Like you want someone, you want to explore your body. You want someone else to explore your body, you know, and where you're not really feeling that where you're not too happy with yourself. It's kind of hard for you to feel like, Oh, I'm worthy of pleasure. Or I'm worthy of someone to explore me or to give me pleasure.
1: Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, that's been very, I suppose, indicative of my experience too, Natalie, in the sense that over the last six years battling, not battling, I like dancing better, dancing better, dancing with depression and being diagnosed with clinical depression back in 2014, I have noticed that in relationship that my level of depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety absolutely affects my sexual performance. I mean, I've gone, there were a couple periods that I went one entire year without sex and then I went another eight month period without any masturbation, even. I mean, I just, I was so in such a low, dark, painful place psychologically, emotionally, that I couldn't even open myself to that possibility. And it's interesting, too, if you talk about the dynamic of desire and libido. And my current partner, Laura, has a high level of testosterone and her libido is higher than mine. So it's been an interesting navigation of when I do have a depressive episode, which if I want to give myself, I don't know, not credit, but a pat on the back, I feel like I've been managing my depression, my mental health pretty well over this quarantine period. And, but there are days like even yesterday at the time of this recording, you know, she she came over and we made dinner together and had a wonderful evening, but I just, I had had an entire day of, I don't know, ruminating on some dark things and beating myself up. And as a result, I just didn't really feel like having sex. But you know the other side of all this, I guess, that I want to kind of call back to before I forget, in talking about the energetic dynamics, you, know, you talked about like dom or submissive or these energetic roles. Years ago, I was working with my therapist, Gary, who I've had just a great relationship with. And I was talking to him about my challenges in romantic relationship of feeling that I am a very, very emotionally sensitive man. And some women have not understood really what to do with that because I guess they're used to more of a traditional dominating, emotionally closed off, you know, sort of male archetype. And me being in a very sensitive, emotionally receptive role, I was talking about the challenges of that. And I said, and I just made this up on the spot. I said, I think that I'm energetically androgynous. He said, what does that mean to you? I said, I feel like I've kind of naturally have a balance of archetypically feminine and masculine energies. I'm an energetically androgynous person. He said, well, it sounds like maybe you need to find an energetically androgynous person too. And I've never really used that phrasing on the podcast before, but I feel like it really kind of accurately describes how I feel on the inside, like regardless of my chosen gender or my gender assignment, I just feel like I have a balance of what one would call masculine and feminine energies, even if that's a thing. And sometimes I wonder if that's even a thing, you know, assigning gender roles to energies. Is any of this making sense or do I sound like a crazy person?
0: It makes sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, you don't sound crazy at all. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And I have to just jump in for a second, Jace. I feel like Laura is an energetically androgynous person. And so I was like, I thought you were going to bring up like you found your person. Like I remember when you met her and you just energetically compliment and physically compliment each other in so many ways. And it's been really lovely to witness that. And I think she's been one of the only partners that I know of, myself included, Natalie. Jason and I dated years ago and transitioned into a friendship, which confuses a lot of people too, actually. Oh my (laughs) God. The fact that we can be like great friends and run a business together is like so confusing to people. And people often assume that Jason and I are dating or married. But anyways, with Laura, Jason, it's really lovely to me because it seems like she, I mean, even you talking about her testosterone, I'm like, that just makes sense that you would be with someone like that, that balance you out in that way. And literally and figuratively hold you when you're feeling in the more feminine energy and not be afraid of that whereas i feel like a lot of women myself included in some ways like i tend to go like the masculine energy feels more comfortable for me and i'm not always or haven't been in the past i suppose i'm working on this but being able to hold a man when he's in that vulnerable feminine energy and i think that's something that a lot of women struggle with so i just want to give props to Laura because i think she's got that androgynous energy too That's awesome. That's so
2: great that, yeah, I mean, it sounds like I I haven't met her, but it sounds for sure like you have met your person. It sounds like she definitely matches your energy.
1: Oh, yeah. It's awesome because I feel like we are both kind of exploring not being so attached to, again, like not labels and titles regarding the container of our relationship. Like I mentioned at the beginning when people were, were really kind of grilling her about her sexuality and how could you be with a guy and we thought you were this way and that way. And I think it's an ongoing exploration because we are, I suppose, fluid in that way. Like we're very fluid in the exploration of our dynamic. That's what I meant is like, there are times when, you know, she feels like she needs to cry and she's uncertain about things and she feels like super vulnerable and just wants to break down and let her emotions out. And I do that a lot. I think actually on the third date, I cried in front of her, you know, and I didn't feel weird about it. You know, there wasn't this moment of like, oh God, she's going to think I'm weak or she's going to think that I'm. I don't even know. Like, I just had a moment where I needed to cry and I cried in front of her and she held me and it was a beautiful moment. We actually still bring that up of like, yeah, remember on the third date when I cried with you? And I think what I feel with her is a lot of freedom to be as we are and learn more about one another without being so, I don't know, locked down to sort of traditional dynamics. Yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it.
0: It's also interesting because you two started dating right before quarantine happened, right? I mean, it was like, what, the first week of March 2020? Yeah. And so you have an interesting perspective on what it's like to date during quarantine and make these decisions. Like, do you see somebody and are you sexual with somebody when, you know, your masks are obviously off and you're exchanging fluids in a lot of ways? And I actually haven't heard you talk about what that decision process was like for you and her and the pros and cons of dating someone during this time?
1: Well, we had an agreement at the beginning that we were both going to be extremely mindful of our self-care in terms of, you know, she's on board for always wearing a mask and having hand sanitizer and having really, I suppose, responsible hygiene whilst in public and at home. And she actually recently had a COVID test and is negative. So it was just a conversation of us both being very mindful and very responsible of how we were caring for our health while in a container of a new romantic relationship. So the sex has been amazing. You asked about having sex. It's been amazing because it's this exploratory period of obviously being in a new relationship, she has a very high level of openness and kink and being very open to trying new things, as do I. So I think it's just been a beautiful container of being very communicative, being very open, and also, again, being very responsible about how we're handling our personal health and also our sexual health being in this new container of relationship together.
2: That's amazing. That's really exciting. And I mean, if your relationship can thrive during uh, coronavirus, then- (laughs) It seems like you guys have a bright future ahead of you.
1: I hope so, Natalie. It's cool that you say that because I feel like in a sense having a new relationship during this period, there feels like there's been an accelerative effect to our intimacy, right? Because I suppose the traditional channels of what I certainly would like to do with her were not available, right? It was like, oh, I want to book all these concert tickets and we'll go to Coachella and we'll go to Burning Man and we'll do all, I suppose, the... I don't know, sort of regular dating rituals of let's go out to a restaurant, let's go see shows, let's go see improv comedy. Like Here in LA, obviously, all that's been shut down for months. So as a result, those sort of externalized activities, which can maybe serve as distractions sometimes, were not available to us. So henceforth, I kind of feel like the really deep, intimate, emotional conversations happened much more quickly than perhaps they would have had we had those traditional dating channels available to us.
2: Yeah, for sure. You guys are like kind of um, almost using what you have in front of you and trying to like make it work and figuring out like creative ways to just like keep this like alive, you know, because it's still very early, right?
1: It is. Yeah. It's very early. And I feel like we've made domestication sexy. Like we're bringing domestication back, y'all. We're making, oh, (laughs) baby, baby, what do you want to do tonight? Make dinner at home again? Yeah. We're going to make dinner at home. Fuck yeah. We're going to make dinner at home. What you want? Japchae, Korean noodles. Fuck yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it is, it can be sexy. Yeah, and and it is. It's funny, like, you know, hanging out with the animals on the couch, making dinner at home, you know, playing fun games with each other. I mean, just we've sort of just embraced the domesticity fully and made it fucking sexy.
0: (laughs) I love that. And I feel like uh, it's such an interesting thing because so many people have different responses to sexuality during this time and their relationship dynamics. And I think ultimately, we just have to each examine what our values are and our comfort level when it comes to our relationships and sexuality. And I mean, I think that's a big part of taking out the shame and the stigma and all of this is just being open-minded and flexible and not comparing your relationships and sexuality to other people because each of us are just experiencing it in different ways.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think you guys both have something going on that's really great. And I think, yeah, like being (laughs) doing things like cooking for each other and staying home and like being with like your pets or anything of that sort. I think that's super important. And especially right now, because yeah, it's a really, really stressful time and you need to respect your partner if maybe they're in the mood or they're not in the mood for sex. And if they're not, find those different ways to show them that you care and that they're special because, I mean, who knows what, I mean, so many people right now are going through so many different hardships and, you know, to have someone to remind you that you're still... Worthy of love and worthy of just anything great right now is really important.
0: Well said. What are some of your favorite resources for learning about sexuality and and relationship dynamics? I know you mentioned The Atlantic, which I love too. There's always great articles there, but what else do you read? Do you have like favorite books or YouTube channels or other podcasts? What have you found enlightening for your expanding your knowledge and awareness on these topics? Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So I
2: love looking for content that is made by people who have firsthand experience of that. So for me, I like going on YouTube. I like finding YouTube videos by people who are asexual or by people who are living with a disability and who are openly talking about it. That's the kind of content that I like to consume, especially on Instagram too. I like following accounts from people who know what they're talking about because they themselves are in that community or they have experienced that. For example, the intersex project, I really spent a lot of time on there actually, because I felt like, you know, if I'm going to learn anything about the intersex community, I really need to find content made by people who are intersex. For example, like I read Middlesex during quarantine and I loved it. It was amazing. It was, an, it was a great book. I loved it so much. But the author isn't intersex, you know? And so I still wanted to learn more about that experience. So looking for organizations like the Intersex Project and, you know, sitting down and watching videos that they made, because people who are featured on that website. in that organization who are affiliated, they record their own videos where they talk about their story. And I watched almost all of them, actually, especially because intersex people, they, not everyone is intersex in the same way, really, like they all have different experiences. So for me, I really like seeking out that kind of content, and supporting independent content creators, like exploring, like, like uh, looking for content made by people who maybe that's their only source of income. For example, like Andrew Gerza, who is our first guest who I mentioned earlier, he is disability awareness consultant. And that's kind of a title that he made up himself. And him as a disability awareness consultant, what he does is that he does talks. He has his podcast. He writes articles, and so that's really what I do. I really seek out articles that are written by people from that kind of experience. I read this really great article from Vice about fat phobia and sex. I really gravitate to specific articles or specific podcast episodes from content creators that touch on those subjects. I've been listening a lot to Shortwave, and Shortwave by NPR is it's a science podcast. But it's been really interesting hearing them lately because they've definitely been exploring the science behind racism or the science behind this kind of why maybe climate change affects this group of people as opposed to this other group of people. But if I definitely had to give a shout out to one specific podcast or one specific like place to get content, I have been binging Nancy, which is a great podcast by WNYC, unfortunately it was canceled after the fourth season, I believe, but I've been listening to all of their older episodes and they have great content that is about the LGBTQ plus community, but it's also just more, you're also hearing stories that aren't so cookie cutter. They're not like the typical this story or the typical that story. You're really learning a lot About people from all different identities and different experiences. And, you know, they had a great episode about child drag stars, you know, kids doing drag. And they had a great episode exploring that. They had an amazing episode exploring queer sex ed. How like there's some places that are advocating for that. They want sex education to not be so heteronormative. Because that so many people I've spoken to, it's like they grew up with sex ad at their schools. And they're just like, this really doesn't pertain to me at all. I'm not the target audience for this kind of education. You know, I don't see myself practicing the things you're asking me to practice or being careful in the way that you're asking me to be. And yeah, Nancy is definitely a great podcast to check out. And yeah, for me, I just I like finding people. I love finding the op eds. I love finding the personal essays by people who are living in it. I think that's the best way to learn about sex to learn about sex work or different
0: orientations or different experiences. That's wonderful. I was looking up the uh, everything that you just mentioned so I can put in the show notes. So for the listener, you can go to wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And if you go to the podcast section of our website, we have show notes for every episode. And for Natalie's, we're going to be linking to everything she's talked about. Is Middlesex the novel that was written by Jeffrey... I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Is that the one you were referencing? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the one wrote, I referenced. Yeah. Suicides, correct? Yeah, he wrote Virgin
2: Suicides. It's an incredible book. It's also very it's like a history book. It goes over all these different periods of like history. It's kinda like Forrest Gump in a way, where this family this family and one of their their daughter is intersex, but this family is like You see the different generations and how they experience, you know, like they talk about like Detroit back in the day and like all these different historical things that happened. It's so great. It's pretty dense. It actually took me, I think it took me like almost three years to finish it because I kept putting it down. It's like I would read like maybe six pages and I felt like I read a whole history book or something, like a super dense. Like there's so much information in it. Yeah, it wasn't until during quarantine that I really delve into it and I was like, no, I'm really gonna finish it. And then when I, you know, was like, okay, I have the time to only focus on this, I finished it within days. It was so good. But yeah, it's a great book. I love it. It's amazing. But it's not by someone who is intersex. It's it's not. So while it is great, and I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it or appreciate the representation, it inspired me to look for more from information elsewhere. Usually whenever I consume anything, like any documentaries, just anything, um, especially during this time I've been watching so many documentaries, anytime I do that, I kind of just fall into a rabbit hole and just like look for content elsewhere. I look for supporting content, look for other things about it. You know, I guess for me, the like the lesson doesn't like finish with like the end of a book or the end of a documentary. I continue trying to learn more and teach myself by reading elsewhere.
1: I guess the overarching psychological process that a person can experience through storytelling. Because I think one thing that I'm really moved by, not just listening to your podcast, Natalie, but so much information that I've been consuming. The one thing that I feel very moved by has been just the deep, compelling power of story. And as you're talking about reading these books and consuming this information, hearing these stories, what's kind of like the psychological process here? Is it that, okay, I have awareness now, I have a greater expanded awareness, and hopefully that leads to perhaps a greater sense of empathy for another human being who I don't have a direct relation to what they've experienced, but nonetheless, there's a sense of empathy or maybe love that I experience for this person via their story. And then perhaps that empathy translates into some sort of action where I'm supporting a person who's different than me. Like, what do you see? I guess the power of story or information having a psychological process on a person when they consume it.
2: I definitely think that it can make you more empathetic and more understanding of other people, especially recently with the Black Lives Matter protests. I think a lot of my friends have been reflecting on the content that they've consumed or the things that they learned in history class that weren't necessarily true. And they're just, me included, we're just opening our eyes to like things that we thought were true and they really weren't or things that we just didn't know. I think when we learn new things and when we learn about all these other experiences all these other stories I think that it makes us more understanding of like how the world works this is embarrassing that I didn't know what Rosewood was until a couple months ago I really didn't and I didn't know about Tulsa until I watched Watchmen the HBO series I had no idea about
0: it I had no idea either (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that crazy, right? To let you learn history yeah. through like some fictional TV show or most of which is fictional. Yeah, yeah. It was so interesting to see that too, because when I watched Watchmen, I was like, oh, this must not be real. And then I looked it up and I was yeah, like, like, "Yeah, <laughs> oh, this actually happened.
2: Yeah, I definitely thought the same thing. But I think when you learn those kind of stories, when you know about them, it everything else kind of makes a little more sense to you, especially right now with the Black Lives Matter protests. It's that viral video of that woman who spoke so passionately about it about like why looting, why people are looting, and why looting shouldn't be so like frowned upon, like why you need to like kind of like be more understanding of it. When she talked about that, she mentioned Rosewood and she mentioned Tulsa. And knowing those two stories, knowing those two things that happened, it makes you understand what's going on a little better. Because she said that she said, like, black people have, they thrived in Rosewood, they thrived in Tulsa. And, you know, that was taken away from us. And so we try to have our own properties, our own we've tried to have ownership in this country and have things that belong to us, but nothing belongs to us. So when nothing belongs to you, it's like, you know, that target that people are alluding, that doesn't belong to the Black community. So I think, yeah, when you learn those kind of stories, I think you have a better understanding as to why things happen, why things are, especially if things are systemic, and you're more likely to just be like, oh, I understand why that happens, as opposed to just like, Oh, these people, they have a good, or I don't know, like the civil rights movement or Jim Crow laws, like that was so long ago, they need to get over it and stuff, you know? And then when you see like the bigger picture and you see stories like Khalif Browder, for instance, when you like, I saw the documentary on Netflix, like when you see that documentary on like Khalif Browder, when you see documentaries about people who are going to jail as teenagers for stealing a backpack you have a better understanding of the world around you and you you're more empathetic at least I hope so at least in my case I'm more empathetic to people and I try to like when I learn more and I see these stories I have a better understanding of people's like struggles in a way I try to I mean you were told growing up at least I was that you don't know what people are going through like try to be nice you don't know what people are going through and stuff you know and so personally don't understand why that is still isn't the case right now, especially when it comes to people who are being marginalized. You know, I think some people are, they quickly jump to conclusions, or they're just like, just get over it, you're exaggerating, this and that, whatever. And yeah, like, there's plenty of stuff that's happening to so many people, and you don't know. So even with like the homeless population, some people might think that, oh, like, just get a job, or they made mistakes, or they brought this upon themselves. And so when you actually speak to people who are in that situation, when you speak to them and you learn about them and why this happened, you have a better understanding and you're less likely to dismiss things as just like, get over it, or this is your fault, or you brought it upon yourself. Um, it's interesting because I think when we're children, we're raised to be more empathetic or we're raised to be just really nice. And then now as adults, it's kind of like every man for themselves, like just fun for yourself and just that's their problem. That person's in that position because they made the wrong decisions. And I don't think that that's the way it should be. It's such a bigger picture. And my friends and me included, I think we're all starting to realize that. And I think it is important to educate yourself, especially, especially now. I mean, you see those Instagram posts and those lists of like, you know, during quarantine, while everyone is talking about race, like races being talked about in mainstream media so much right now, you know, take the time to educate yourself and watch this documentary and that documentary and read that book, you know, because if you're like home scratching your head and not understanding why people are acting this way, or why these things are the way they are, or why they've escalated, you have the resources out there to to find that out. And I think that it is kind of our responsibility to seek out that information. I went to a school in the Los Angeles Unified School District, where we didn't have that many resources and I really wasn't around anyone who wasn't Latino actually. I went to a predominantly Latinx um, school. And so I wasn't around other people who didn't look like me or other experiences or I didn't learn all the things that I kind of know now. And I wish that I did. I wish I think we have a responsibility to teach our kids the truth, to teach the kids or the truth about um for instance, uh, systemic racism, I think for us, it's like, this chapter is about civil rights, like this chapter is about slavery, this chapter is about civil rights movement, but we don't talk about the in between. And we don't talk about the now. And I think when we do that, we're helping make, I I think we're helping build people to be more empathetic, as opposed to being more, like, more dismissive. And where you're dismissive, I think you're just a little more divided, because you're just like, it's this way, it's that way, like, that my brain was wired to think that it's like this. And if you're against that or if you're different about that, then like, you know, you're probably just a special case and as you're an exception, but it's not like the general thing. But yeah, I find information so, so important, especially when there's a lot of misinformation going around. And why not? Why not seek out content made by people of color, made by Indigenous people, made by LGBTQ plus people? Like, why not? Like, why speaking for myself I feel like I've consumed so much white heteronormative cis content all of my life like that's all I've been fed. so like
1: right why not
2: break away from that like what's wrong with that what's wrong with breaking away from that and like watching a documentary or watching a movie about a trans trans experience or watching a movie about yeah about the justice system like like why not yeah I'm
0: all about information I'm so glad that you brought up all those things. I just, as I was adding notes into what we're going to put in our show notes at WellEvator, so that way everybody who's listening can easily find everything you reference, Natalie. I'm like bookmarking movies and books that I I want to check out too. And I'm so grateful for that. And this has just been such an amazing exploratory conversation that went so many different directions and there's so much more to touch upon. And, you know, it's funny, a few episodes ago, Jason and I were talking about one of the big reasons that podcasters, quote, fail or stop, give up, whatever you want to call it. And one of the reasons that podcasters stop creating episodes is they run out of things to talk about, like topics, you know. And for you, I just feel like there's a never-ending topic database you can pull from when it comes to sexuality and all these different voices that you can bring on. And I'm so excited to see what you do with your show and to learn more from that and hear all these different perspectives on how people live their lives and what their preferences are and what they're learning and struggling with. And just thank you so much for being a guest on our show and doing the content that you're doing. It's really important work.
2: Yeah, I try to make informative content. I think that's really important to me. And I'm not by any means a sex expert. And that's something that I've mentioned in my podcast. But I am a journalist and I am someone who loves telling stories. I'm a storyteller. And I think, like, you know, entering a conversation as someone who doesn't know that much and who wants to learn. Yeah, I hope that I can create content where people are learning along with me.
0: I love that. I mean, I think your approach is wonderful because it's almost like less intimidating, at least from my perspective. I'd rather hear from someone like you that feels like you're going in with the type of questions and exploration that I would. So it makes it easier for me to listen because I can relate to you so much. I can see that. Yeah. That makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I can give you a little Validation there, yeah, all, for sure. All as, <laughs> as content creators,
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I explore this content and I'm just like, do I have uh, should I be talking about this? Should I be reporting this? Because I'm not like, I don't have a degree in this or that, you know. So it's nice to hear that.
1: I think it's wonderful that you're overcoming any kind of imposter syndrome that might come up for you, Natalie. Because again, diving into at the time of this recording, the handful of episodes you have up for the podcast. I've just felt expanded and opened listening to them, and I'm already a huge fan. And I just again want to piggyback on what Whitney said to just acknowledge you for your courage, acknowledge you for bringing a voice to people that aren't necessarily having a voice in the mainstream around their sexuality and identity. And I just think it's wonderful. And for the listener, you can find Natalie's work on her website. It's by Natalie Rivera. And we will have all the links to her podcast, How I Fuck, and all of her social media handles if you want to dive more into her incredible, I'm going to say groundbreaking, Natalie. I'm going to bust out that word.
2: (laughs) That's a great word. Thank you.
1: (laughs) For me, it is, honestly. And I just want to, again, thank you for opening my heart and my mind to new perspectives. And to you, dear listener, uh, thank you for joining us again for another episode here of This Might Get Uncomfortable with myself and my partner in crime, Whitney Lorentzen. Natalie, again, thank you so much. You are an absolute pleasure and just love your energy and love what you're putting out in the world. Thanks again.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And this was a great conversation. I loved it.
0: Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.